pray. Father, we thank you so much for the revelation of your wrath and of your love, of your mercy and of your kindness. We thank you, Lord, we're not ignorant. We thank you we have an open Bible. And Father, we ask you right now for the help and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We pray especially for any who are trying to work out whether they can know God for themselves, whether there is a God who will answer their prayers, whether they can know him in their life, day by day, year by year. Holy Spirit, would you please come? Make yourself so real to us. Make Jesus real to us. Let your glorious gospel bear fruit in our lives. Even tonight, we pray, Father. Let your fire rest upon us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is one of the uh, famous showdowns in the Bible. I personally love showdowns. I love, I love cowboy movies. I don't know about you. I've uh, put up there Gunfight at OK Corral. That was one of the great cowboy movies that built to a tremendous dramatic conclusion. And I, I love those dramatic conclusions in cowboy movies. I love it when the, the hero, maybe a couple of them, walk down the street vastly outnumbered, but they just somehow carry with them uh, such a kind of splendid sense, no, we're going to win this. And uh, I just love that stuff. And Gunfight at OK Corral is that kind of a movie. I guess I was trained to like such movies from an early age. I was sent off to the cinema on Saturday mornings where you saw, among other things, uh, always there was a cowboy movie. Uh, there was a famous guy called Hopalong Cassidy. Can you imagine? That was his name, and it was black and white. But at the end, there was always a tremendous climax. There was a, a showdown. The, the guns went, and the baddies fell, and the good guys stood at the end. And that uh, was triumphant. And that, that's the only way you can make a Western, really. I don't know if you remember Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. I thought, oh, another good Western. Went to see it. And there's two guys talking to one another all through a movie. It was silly. There was no shooting at the end. It, it was, uh, well, there was, but not the way you like it. But uh, no, I thought, no, the real thing, you have to have the climax. I was actually uh, flying recently down to South Africa, and there was a, a, a really up-to-date, real cowboy film with a tremendous ending. Uh, Robert Duval was there and, and just these two guys wiping out everybody. It's lovely. I can fall asleep with joy on the rest of the flight <laughs> when I'd seen that uh, climactic event, the showdown. You know, the reality is the Bible kind of loves showdowns. You'll find that they are there repeated times when the hero is often standing alone, outnumbered vastly actually. Maybe Moses is the first occasion where you see him against mighty Pharaoh, his army. Uh, there's a hugely powerful empire, really. And there's little Moses who's got a stick, and that's about it. And uh, he's facing this huge uh, empire. But gradually, as he begins to step forward, you find signs and wonders and plagues. And gradually, this huge empire is humbled and brought down and brought down until, in the end, Moses leads the people to the Red Sea. And then this great army follow them. And you know the story, no doubt. The Red Sea opens, Moses marches through, and the army is slaughtered. And Moses wins at the end. He's triumphant. Like David. David may be the most famous. If people know hardly anything about the Bible, they know about David and Goliath. And uh, you'll find that sports writers love the David-Goliath image. There's the mighty 
Goliath, the mighty giant, invincible, at the head of a great army. And there's the army of God just dwindling and looking so feeble. And then comes a hero. There comes a, a, one that's been quietly trained by God. He's secretly had victories, even with his hands against bears and lied, looking after a few sheep that belonged to his father, being secretly trained until he's brought forth. And there there's a kind of mediator who stands on God's behalf against the odds, and it's an opportunity for God to demonstrate his awesome power. God sweeps in and delivers Israel so that again and again, gradually, Israel learns salvation is from the Lord. It's God's intervention. He's looking maybe for one faithful lightning rod whom he can work through, but it's God who does it. Inevitably, it's God. Even with Gideon, when Gideon has an army and it's cut back a bit, God still says, no, it's far too many. Cut them right back till there's only 300 of them against tens of thousands so that it's very evident that it's God. God did it. God got hold of a guy. God dealt with him. God pushed him forward, and then God swept in. And there's a mighty, mighty victory. It just happens again and again in the Bible. Daniel, later on, alone, God owns him, even there in Babylon, so that the king says, oh, he is the true God. God displays his power. He does it in all kinds of settings, but often against the odds, owning a particular servant who's walking in faith and obedience. So we come upon these power encounters where God himself is revealed. Just looking for an obedient servant who will just be there, be his mouthpiece, be his agent, be his mediator, whereby he can sweep in and save them. So here we have such a story. Elijah has been secretly prepared, and now God is going to work. Just to remind you of the background that Israel, the people, Israelite nation, were God's special people. God had spoken to their earliest forefather, Abraham, when he was just a pagan, and said to him, now I am going to work through you and your family. They will become a great nation, and this is the way I will bless the whole world. We find Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who gets renamed Israel in a covenant with him. Twelve sons, and they are to be a nation. They grow to a great nation. Even while they're in Egypt, in slavery, they grow to about two million. And then out from there, they get called out supernaturally. And God is very, very committed to them. They're not just functional. He loves them dearly. He actually says, out of Egypt, I call my son It's a very intimate relationship. I'm calling this special people out. He uses other intimate language. He says, that's like my bride. It's like I'm married to them. I I make covenant with them. I will be with them. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. And through them, I am going to bless all the nations. They are the light of the world. All my commitment is with them. I'm not working in any other nation. I'm working through this nation. And tragically, they start losing their way. They start flirting with other gods. And that's how God does see it, flirting. He does see it as disloyalty. He calls it adultery as they go after other gods because God's heart is committed to them. It's like his bride is giving her favors to other gods. He feels it intensely. He begins to warn them. He begins to speak to them until we come to the story of Elijah because by that time, a certain king, Ahab, who is... So tolerant. Let it, just let it, anything happen. 
He's so typical of the kind of post-Christian, post-modern generation we live in. That kind of glories in toleration. Not having any clear lines. Have what you think and let's just discover more. There's no kind of clear, this is right, this is wrong. No, let's just learn. Let's try anything. And that was the kind of spirit of the age. They'd forgotten who they were meant to be. They'd forgotten black and white. They'd forgotten a God who gave ten commandments. They were experimenting. So much like our generation. As I drove in this morning, I just had the car radio on, and I heard some educationalists speaking. And one bright-eyed lady said, I want to lead them into the wonders of uncertainty. That was her goal as an educationalist. I want to take these students and lead them into the wonders of uncertainty. So, God, that is the goal of this educationalist. Don't, they don't need black and white. They need uncertainty and all the wonders of it. And this was a kind of generation. It's like, well, try this, try that. Who knows? It could be this way, it could be that way. Let's try this God, let's try that God. They're forgetting things that really matter. Things that really bring safety and security. And tremendous things like, he's my rock. I know where I stand when I stand with him. Now, well, let's try this, let's try that. That was the spirit of the age. They tolerated, they compromised. And Ahab, the king, left a terrible vacuum of authority. That's the tragedy when we live with kind of, well, just tolerate everything. There is a vacuum of authority. And into that vacuum of authority came Jezebel, who wasn't tolerant at all. She had an agenda. And that kind of thing happens, I'm afraid, in a nation that says, well, Anything goes, we're all right. Nothing's particularly right. I guess we're all right, really. You will find people who have a very serious agenda take advantage of that. And Jezebel was such a person. She moved into the authority vacuum. And she was hostile to the worship of Yahweh. She's very, very motivated by God's enemy. The word Jezebel appears again later in the Bible. She seems to represent something of satanic force. And so we find this is the situation. She's there, and now she's pushed things so far that the worship of God is actually illegal. Prophets of God have been killed, and it's unlawful to worship their historic God. You can't do that anymore. It's against the law. You're not allowed to say the things you used to say. Not allowed to believe the things you used to believe. They are no longer acceptable. She has really pushed her agenda until it rules. Now, at that time, Elijah came on the scene, and we've been looking at that from time to time. He's been secretly trained by God, rather like David was with the lion and the bear. We've read how Elijah, first at the brook Cherith, where he believed God that he would be supernaturally provided for. The brook would be there for him. The ravens would feed him, and in obedience to God, he just did what God told him to do. He says, quite simply, he arose and went. And then when the brook dried up, God said, now go to Zarephath. He arose and went. And while he's there, we saw the tragedy in an earlier session we had together, how the widow woman who's providing food for him, looking after him, her son died. And you find Elijah still praised, though there's no previous record of anyone ever being raised from the dead in the Bible. Elijah lays on him, prays over him, and sees him raised from the dead. This guy is secretly proving you can trust God. 
No crowds to applaud, no one knowing, just the widow saying, my son's alive again. And here's this faithful, faithful servant being prepared behind the scenes. But now we're coming to the big day. Now we're coming to gunfight at OK Corral. Now we're heading to the climax, the showdown. Elijah says, gather everybody at Carmel. And having, as it were, closed the heavens for three years, he assumes huge authority. He says, gather the nation, and they gather. Because it was he who said it won't rain till I say so. Now he has authority. Now he's in this public occasion. <clears throat> Finally, the nation is gathered. 450 prophets of Baal and Elijah standing alone. That's how they face up in this showdown. And there comes this simple request. Let the God who answers by fire be our true God. Let him be demonstrated to be the authentic, real, real God. The one who actually answers prayer. The one who knows about us. The one who hears us when we pray. The real God. And it seems that God is not alarmed to have this pragmatic reality test put before him. It seems that God is in fellowship with his servant. He's ready to demonstrate his power. That is the God we come to. The Bible says, to you who answers prayer, to you shall all flesh come. There's a magnetic drawing to a God who actually answers prayer. In a world that's tough and demanding, pressures, raising family, holding job, making big decisions, doing study, all the things that press in on your mind. Isn't it great to have a God who answers prayer? That we're not just going through the routine. We're not, as sometimes people say, well, a prayer is good for you. You pray, you kind of get rid of your tensions. Not like there's anybody there, of course. You're just, it's like psychological release. No, all nations don't come to that God. The nations come to a God who answers prayer. And God is quite happy to demonstrate that he is that kind of a God. He is the God who is actually there and actually answers prayer. And if we gave opportunity tonight and said, let's one after another tell things where we felt, help, Lord, how are we going to live? And we prayed and the things that God has done in answer to the prayers of his people, even people in this room, let alone going back through history. God answers prayer. That's the one he's happy to be known as. So we're ready for the showdown. Who is going to answer prayer? Well, first comes the prophets of Baal. As at the gunfight, the baddies always draw first. All right, so here come the prophets of Baal. They're going to have their go first. And you'll find that they start their religious ritual. They start leaping around the altar. That seems to be the way you conduct your service. That is the external religious ritual. They're beginning to kick into their religion. They're leaping around the altar. Sadly, nothing happens. There's no voice from heaven. There's no answer. There's not a spark in the sky. Nothing taking place. Elijah begins to mock them begins to put pressure on. Says, no, of course, he's a god. Maybe he's asleep. And he's really mocking them. He's really putting the pressure on. And you find then they, they move on to a second phase. They start cutting themselves. You know, often you'll find with false religion that is a kind of a, 
are doing yourself harm. It can be asceticism. You know, we don't eat that. Uh, we make a long pilgrimage. We get into the river. We wash ourselves. We, we do kind of strange things to ourselves. I remember once when I was in Mumbai and looking out of the window, I saw a man literally just walking down the street. He had a whip in each hand. He had no shirt on his back, and he was whipping his back as he walked down the street. And friends said to me, oh, he's a holy man. He looked like a silly man to me. But they said, no, he's a holy man. And what they meant was he's sort of trying to do something to get rid of his sense of guilt and shame and things he shouldn't have in his life because he wants to be holy. And very often you'll find that that is an ingredient with people who don't know a God who provides mercy. They don't know a God who answers prayer. But somehow they feel, I've got stuff in my life I shouldn't have. So need to somehow compensate for that. Can I, can I not do something to compensate for that? So the thing they do is they, they hurt themselves. And here, these guys start cutting themselves and gushing out blood. They're trying to somehow say, look, I'm, I mean business. But it leads to nothing. There is no answer. And then the third phase is they start raving. <clears throat> now they're into a religious frenzy. They've kissed their brains goodbye. I want you to know if you're inquiring into the faith, <clears throat> you may sometimes see <clears throat> sorry, enthusiasm here. We're not kissing our brains goodbye. We're not trying to whip into a frenzy. We're sometimes raising our hands out of pure thanksgiving and appreciation to God. There is no frenzy. There is no stepping out of reason. We have a reason why we're happy. We have a reason why sometimes the words of our song talk about we dance, we sing, we celebrate. We're thankful to God. But here we're talking about a frenzy. Now, now, now they're raving. Now they're outside of the realities that normal life has to do with. And in the Bible it says you have to be prepared to have a reason. You should be able to logically express what you believe. We don't need to be kind of crazy fanatical to demonstrate that we're authentic. Here, tragically, this is the way they went. Meanwhile, Elijah stokes up the mockery. It's interesting to notice that the Bible doesn't applaud religion. It doesn't say, well, of course, that's the way you do it, and that's very nice. We don't do it that way, but of course, you're free to do that. We do it this way, but of course there's only one God, and we will all find our way to him ultimately. The Bible doesn't actually say that. The Bible is pretty hostile to religion per se, and particularly religion that is not lined up with the authentic God. The Bible doesn't applaud it. The Bible doesn't say, well, you know, <clears throat> you go it your way, we'll do it ours. It doesn't say, well, of course, this was a bit primitive, but they're going through a primitive phase. And, of course, gradually they will arrive at something more meaningful. But they're on their way to faith. It doesn't say that. It says very much the opposite. In fact, it says similar in the New Testament, where Paul, in his great philosophy of history, really, in Romans in chapter 1, one of the gross uh, majestic sections of our New Testament, Paul says in Romans 1.21, even though they knew God... They didn't honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile 
in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures. They worshipped all kinds of stuff. And the Bible says that is so wrong. That is so dishonouring to God. And actually, it's dishonouring to you, who are made in the image of this God. It's so debasing you, who have been given dignity to know God, the authentic and real God. So there's no applause. There's no, well, you'll get there eventually. There's no saying, well, you, we all worship God. It's just that you worship differently. That's okay. Now, the Bible doesn't actually say that. Now, some people would say, well, that is actually, what you're saying now is why I resist becoming a Christian. That's one of the reasons I resist it, because in the midst of many, many religions, you will make this claim that yours is the authentic one. And that is outrageous. How can you, when there are so many different religions, say, this is the correct one? I mean, how can you do that? And that's one of the reasons people say, no, I'm not, a, I'm not interested in religion. How can you know which is the right one? And how can you claim ours is right, but others are wrong? And some people, that's their main reason for resisting becoming a Christian. It can be pointed out, dear friends, that that is an emotional response. It's not a scientific one. It's not a considered one. It's not, well... You mean it's impossible for one to be right? It's not working it out systematically. It's a kind of, I don't like that. It's an emotional rejection. It's not, well, of course it's possible that one's right. In fact, actually it's probably likely that one is right. That's a more logical, and let's, so let's investigate them. Let's look more carefully. To, to wipe off everything because someone claims this is the answer it's an emotional reaction. It's not a thought-out response. See, if you go to a hospital and someone's terribly ill, and someone says, well, what medicine do you prescribe? And the answer is, well, they're all good. Medicine's all good. Come on, it's a hospital. Medicine's all good. Just give them whatever you like. It doesn't really matter. Just take whatever medicine. They're all, all medicines are good. They're all to improve you. Just have anyone. You can't do that in a hospital. You have to prescribe the right medicine. You have to get it right. If you get it wrong, you're in big trouble. You don't say, oh no, all medicines are good. You make sure you get the right medicine. It's not regarded as terribly exclusive to say this is the right medicine. It's kind of appropriate. In fact, when I was in Wales quite recently, I was talking to a former nurse who had lost her job as a nurse because she gave her patient the wrong medicine. And she was immediately sacked, though it was she who actually realized she did it and quickly made amends. But they said, that's it, you're finished. She lost her job. But you said, but that's life and death. Well, what do you think I'm talking about? I'm talking about life and death. I'm not talking about a hobby. You might like this one or that one. We're talking about huge issues of eternal life. 
And so it's quite foolish, oh, I don't believe any of them. Because No, 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 that is not a very good answer. It's not very wise. It's like saying, well, all medicines will get you there. They won't. You need to be correct and accurate. So here we see these guys doing religion, and it's not doing them any good. There's no answer from heaven. What you want is an answer from heaven. You want some sort of demonstration. This is a real God who really helps. Would you like a God who really helps? I'm so glad I found one who really helped me through the confusion of my teenage life and has helped me on through the decades. A real God who's really there and really answers prayer. Not doing some religion, but finding the real God. And so we find this inept effort which leads nowhere. Then we see Elijah steps in. Elijah begins by building the altar. He rebuilds. He's restoring something that's lost, something that's spoiled, something that's been terribly neglected. There is a dignity in the human race that speaks of the quality of God, the glory of God. There's something in you that will only be satisfied when it's rebuilt to relate to him. Because you're made in his image. You're made in his likeness. You will only find peace when you are rebuilt in relationship with him. And Elijah begins not to say, well, let the fire fall. He knows some stuff has to happen. And this nation that was in relationship with God by covenant, by God's mercy, by the 12 tribes... They were a distinctive nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, four, and then another four, then another four, 12 sons, and God related to them as a nation. He called them Israel, prince with God. He was the God of Israel. This was their relationship with him, just as the human race has a relationship with God. If you can find him, rediscover him, come back to him, be rebuilt around him. Find yourself again in relationship with him. And so we find this beautiful thing. He begins to rebuild the altar. Twelve stones, it says in verse 31, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. God loved these people. They were in unique relationship with him. He was ready to bless them ready to forgive them. He's ready to forgive you tonight. He's ready to restore you to himself. Beautiful to see how God actually sees them. He had provided a temple and a priesthood and a way of mercy. He had made a beautiful way for these people to draw close to him. And these 12 tribes were represented even on clothing that the priest had to wear. And he was specially designed to wear this clothing. And the 12 tribes were then, and it's interesting how God told them. He said, now put this breastplate on this priest, and he's to have four rows of stones on it. The first row should be a row of ruby, topaz, emerald. The second row, turquoise, sapphire, diamond. The third row, jacinth, agat, amethyst. The fourth row, beryl, onyx, jasper. They should be set in gold 
filigree. Here, Elijah's putting some stones together, but behind the just normal stones is an attitude of God towards these people that defies description and its beauty, its preciousness. That's how God sees them. God sees them as precious and delightful and the joy of his heart, a special covenant relationship. And Elijah's rebuilding the covenant. He's reestablishing the relationship. He's setting things to right that had gone terribly wrong. He's rebuilding the altar, restoring the relationship, a unique, exquisite relationship. And he says in his prayer, effectively, his prayer is very, very simple. It's very, very open and honest. He just says to the people, now draw near. There's no external religious ritual. It's just a man with promises and a God. It's very accessible, very understandable. And he praises God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known you are God, that I am your servant, that I've done these things at your word. Let it be known I've simply done what you told me to do. Do you know that's one of the wonderful bases of believing prayer? Jesus taught in John chapter 15, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you can ask what you will, it'll be done. If you abide in me, if you stay in me, if you keep relating to me, if you keep welcoming me as your God into your life on a daily basis, and my words, that is my instructions, the thing I say to you, what I require, the things I tell you to do, if they are remaining in you, like Elijah said, I've done this because you told me to, you can ask what you like. It'll be done for you. Elijah is one of the great model prayers. We'll look at him again in a few weeks' time when we see him praying for the rain. He is a great model prayer. But he's saying, Lord, I've done whatever you told me. Prayer is to do with a relationship where God is God and we are subject to him. And the answer comes immediately. Fire falls from heaven. Supernatural Intervention. God demonstrating, it is I who save. Israel, understand this. It is I who save. It's I who step in. It's what only God can do. It's not like Elijah became suddenly a great orator. Not that Elijah scooped them up into his skills, his rhetorical skills to capture their imagination with grace. No, no. He just said, Lord, come and do it. Please come. And God demonstrated he is the Savior. It's God who saves. Salvation is of the Lord. And here's one of the most magnificent displays, just like as Goliath fell, as Pharaoh is swamped in the Red Sea. God saves, God acts, God interrupts, God intervenes. He steps in. Fire comes, licks up the altar, licks up the sacrifice, the water, the dust, the rocks. God comes with enthusiasm. It's not just a moral code. It's not just a list of rules. It's not just a program of church services. We know a God who answers prayer. A God who acts, God who does things, who excites us by his interruptions, the amazing things he does. Wouldn't you like to know this God? He's wonderful. He breaks in on your life. He excites and amazes you. He's worth following. I wouldn't give you tuppence for religion. It's great knowing this God who steps in and acts 
and moves with power. It's not the first time he's done this. You can look back in the Old Testament. You'll find in Leviticus and chapter 9, Moses lays out a sacrifice. And it says in Leviticus 9, 24, the glory of the Lord appeared and fire came and consumed the offering. Happened for Moses. It's not the only time in the Bible. Again, in 1 Chronicles 21, verse 26, in David's day, David builds an altar, puts a sacrifice on it, and it says... After he laid the offering there, he called on the Lord. He answered him with fire from heaven. God answers with fire from heaven. God loves visiting his people. He loves coming and manifesting his presence, his power. He loves to work through the mediator that he's chosen, owning the servant that he's chosen, vindicating him. This one that's walked with me, I've vindicated him, I save you. Does it again and again and again. Moses, David, Gideon, Elijah. He loves breaking in. Before we leave our story, I just felt as I was praying and considering this word with you this last week, I felt God just remind me of another hill and another phenomenal encounter. Another time in our Bible history where one man stood against the vast crowd. Where one mediator representing God stood alone against the crowd. Actually the most dramatic one of all. The one from which we number our years. When God really interrupted world history. The most amazing showdown there's ever been. But we find some strange features really. Because here we find... The crowd are mocking him. It's not like Elijah mocking them. It's like the crowd. It's it's a strange situation. The lonely mediator who stands for God is alone, like the others, but it seems to be going horribly wrong. They're mocking him. And there's nothing coming from heaven. So we find here the enemies start taunting him. They start saying things like this. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights in him. Nothing from heaven. Not a spark. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. He stays on the cross. Nothing's happening. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now. And then we'll believe in him. Come on. Step off the cross. Then we'll believe. We just need an answer from heaven. And then one mocking statement that amazingly is full of revelation though not meant to be it says this he saved others he can't save himself it's incredibly true they're acknowledging he saved others he's been around for three years saving people not even as hidden as Elijah when he raised the voice from the dead but much more public they knew of lepers who'd been cleansed 
people full of greed who've been set free. They knew of people who were bleeding and bleeding and went to every kind of doctor but just touched him and his whole, their whole. He saved others. They knew he saved others. He can't save himself. They didn't understand this incredible showdown. They didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand that if he had saved himself, and he says, I could call on 12 legions of angels, he told Peter and his disciples secretly. That's 72,000 angels. Not just a fire. Can you imagine those angels saying, I'll go, I'll go. I could call 72,000 angels, but I won't. He didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb before his shearer is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Why? Why couldn't he save himself? Because our guilt was laid on him. If he's going to save us, he can't save himself. Like Aslan, he has to walk into the secret. He has to walk into something, an incredible, eternal mystery in God. There's going to be a substitution. And though no one can see what's happening, the mightiest showdown the world has ever seen is happening. God is dealing with our sin. Unlike David walking back with Goliath's head, in his hand. Our Jesus stays on the cross. But we're told by the apostles later, and Paul in particular says this in Colossians, he cancelled the writing of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside and nailed it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authority. He put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in the cross. It looks like defeat. There's no answer from heaven. My God, my God. There's no answer from heaven. But the reality is that there he's taking our guilt. He's taking all the handwriting that's against you and against me, all the debt you've got that you'll never be able to pay off, all that handwriting, like God writing down all these things that are against you, and he's nailing it to the cross and cancelling the debt. He's triumphing. This is Jesus in his glory, King of heaven, dying for me. It is finished. He has done it. Heaven's open and beckons us. He's winning. It's the greatest triumph, which all the others fade into insignificance. Goliath's taken out, yeah. Egyptians are taken out, yeah. Death is beaten. He has conquered death. He has swallowed up sin. All the sin of the world has been laid upon him. He has taken our guilt and our shame. There's no immediate fire from heaven, but you just wait a few weeks when the scattered, disappointed disciples meet with the risen Christ. He gathers them. He says, now wait. Just wait. Wait until you receive power from on high. And a few days later, they're in an upper room praying. And suddenly, 
Suddenly there's a sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire fall on them all. Not to burn them up, but to empower them to testify Jesus is alive. Jesus has won. Jesus is the winner. And they went out to all the world, nation after nation. They saw the Roman Empire fall as Christianity prevailed and prevailed and prevailed till millions and millions believe in him. Jesus won the great showdown. The great showdown. He smashed the head of Satan by staying there, enduring the shame, receiving the taunts and the mockery, but never, never getting his eye off the great, great victory that God was granting him. A man called Handley Moore said this about the cross. From one point of view, it's a scaffold. From another, it's an imperial chariot. He's winning a great, great victory.